The following program may contain explicit language. It's Thursday, October 29th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There are 81 or so million votes already cast in the presidential election. This means before the first Tuesday, after the first Monday in November, in fact, before November, more votes will have been cast in the 2020 election than have been cast in all but nine of the 58 presidential elections in history. We are already a top 10 election. Granted, the U.S. didn't even have 100 million people until 1915 and didn't have 80 some odd citizens of voting age until the 1940s. But as many people as liked Ike at his height already like Joe, but also Donald or just hate Joe or Donald and want to vote for the other guy. Voting for the other guy does not include Adlai Stevenson, who opposed Ike. Well, both those guys, quite likable fellows, I think. This podcast will not engage in the denigration of Adlai Stevenson. But it is such high turnout, surprising absolutely everyone who even predicted there was going to be very high turnout. It's even higher than that. So who does it favor? Now, the experts tell us there is no way to know. But I think that that's actually true. There is no way to know. I really crack the numbers. And for every indication, you get a counterindication or an explanation for that indication that doesn't have to do with the election. That would have been better if I could have thought of another word that rhymed with Asian. That doesn't have to do with the electoral determination of the nation. There you go. That was good. It's not just being cautious, but the signs of strength for one party or another are easily contradicted by other evidence. For instance, in Georgia and North Carolina, those are the only two states which report early turnout by gender. Georgia, vote by gender, 1.9 million females have voted, 1.47 million males have voted. Big female edge, bigger than the general electorate. Look at North Carolina. Over 2 million women have voted, over 1.58 million men have voted. Another big edge, statistically even bigger than Georgia. So you would say, okay, more women are voting, should be good for Biden, but... Listen to this. The Kaiser Family Foundation did polling on COVID, and what we know about the gender gap in this election seems to at least comport with what we know about people who are very concerned with COVID. Kaiser Family found that a larger share of women compared to men worry that they or someone in their family will get sick from coronavirus. 68% of women do, 56% of men do. And as to the question, do you worry about losing income due to a workplace closure or reduced hours? 50% of the women said yes, 42% of the men said yes. So early voting favoring women could almost entirely be corona warriors are voting earlier, which we knew doesn't tell us anything about the underlying vote total. Some of the statistics that people smarter than I, or at least who have more time than I, but probably are smarter, some of these voting statistics have been looked at and they've asked, well, does this mean there will be a groundswell of opposition? Does this mean there's a seriousness of purpose among Democrats more so than of Republicans? Does this mean that even with corona concerns driving the vote, you can still find that since corona concerns are a big story in this election, you could see actual demonstrable signs that it could favor Joe Biden? No, no, it really doesn't. 
in every way. And let me also caution you by reading this line from a Politico article from 2016, and this was actually a day before the election, where they had, once once again, as with this year, good statistics about North Carolina. In North Carolina, a surge of white women hitting the polls has included many who don't affiliate with either party, a potential worrying sign for Trump, who faces an enormous gender gap. Yeah, well, Trump wound up winning North Carolina by three and a half points. I will say this. If we had seen modest or big but not gigantic early voting numbers, that would have been a concern for Biden. But that is not happening. So if you're a Biden voter, you could take that as the reassuring news of the day. There is a lack of something that had it happened would have been concerning. However, we can't say there is a presence of a clear positive trend. Good luck and carry on knowing that as of this time tomorrow, Joe Biden will have already amassed more votes than Ronald Reagan did in 1980. And as of this taping right now, Donald Trump has already gotten more votes than Walter Mondale did. On the show today, I will look at a Georgia Senate race, not the, but just a Georgia Senate race that has gone viral and what that means for the election. Okay, I'll spoil this part of it. It doesn't mean much. But first, to Iowa we go as we crisscross the country in search of interesting and close voting stories. And Iowa certainly is close. The candidates are making appearances in Iowa, desperate to get the six electoral votes of the Hawkeye state. Let's talk about the presidential race, the Senate race, maybe even some House races with Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines bureau chief of Lee Enterprise Newspapers. Iowa, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To the Midwest we go, Iowa. I did start the election in Iowa at the Iowa State Fair. Saw a guy, young guy, an up-and-comer named Joe Biden. He had a glint in his eye. Actually, I, do, I don't think I even saw Biden at the State Fair. I timed my visit for the real interesting candidates like Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. 
Uh, it was great. I liked it. I like Iowa. I like Iowa elections. So in keeping with that theme, let us ask, how is the campaign going in Iowa? And not just the campaign, but the other campaign, all the campaigns, Senate, House races. We'll check in with Aaron Murphy, who is the Des Moines bureau chief for Lee Enterprises, which owns a bunch of newspapers in Iowa. Hi, Aaron. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Great to be here. Okay, let's talk about the presidential race first. What do you say? Strange. Maybe it's an artifact of a different time to think that Iowa could be Democrat, though Clinton won it twice, Gore did too. The polls, however, are pretty close. What do you think Joe Biden's chances of pulling out a victory, an upset, maybe an upset victory in Iowa are? Yeah, it's very interesting the, the way the, the race has played out here. Uh, you go back to four years ago and President Trump won this state by almost 10 percentage points uh, very comfortably uh, over Hillary Clinton four years ago. And the polling from almost from the get go on this race has been very close and, and to the point where recently within the last couple of weeks here, it's been essentially a toss up in every poll that's come out. So, so, so Iowa is very much in play, very much up for grabs. Um, uh, Joe Biden very well could come out of here with, uh, with a win. And President Trump has been um, sending a lot of surrogates here. Uh, he came here himself recently. Uh, gosh, time, time blends together on me, but it's been a, a week or two now. Vice President Mike Pence is coming back this week, but we just uh, heard yesterday that uh, Vice President Biden is also coming later this week. So, so suddenly uh, I was getting a little attention and uh, a little more uh, competition for those six electoral votes. How did Trump's tariffs and agriculture policy, per se, play out in the minds of the Iowa voter? Uh, it, it definitely has weighed on the mind of voters, especially those rural voters uh, who President Trump did very well with uh, four years ago. But that has been a running issue basically throughout his administration uh, uh, because those moves, the, the, uh, the tariffs and, and the trade and his EPA's uh, policy on ethanol has also um, caused trouble with farmers here because the, the EPA has been granting these waivers to these oil refineries, which lets them get around the ethanol mandate, which lessens demand for ethanol, which is obviously corn-based, huge crop here in Iowa. Um, and it's very much on the minds you, it has not been uncommon at all to hear from farmers and, and rural Iowa voters and people who traditionally you would think of as a safe Republican vote expressing a lot of frustration uh, with the Trump administration and, and their policies. So um, uh, it will be interesting to see how he does in some of those more rural areas that he was successful in four years ago and, and, if, and if some of those policies are, are hurting uh, his re-election campaign effort here this year. In the Senate race, the incumbent Joni Ernst is facing Teresa Greenfield, and Greenfield is leading consistently in most polls. And I watched both. I watched all of one debate and some of another debate. And I have to say, and this is a theme this week as I talk about challengers and incumbents, you know, we often glide over just the quality of the candidate. I think Teresa Greenfield's proving to be, from what I've seen, a pretty good candidate. What do you think? You know, the the, the baseline, I think, <laughs> I always start with is a candidate that doesn't hurt themselves, because uh, we see that all too often. And at the very least, uh, I think it's it's safe to give Teresa Greenfield that. She, she has 
um, not had that real bad moment that that's cost her, you know, a couple news cycles worth of bad headlines uh, or anything like that. Um, you know, and she kind of comes in maybe with a little bit of the advantage of, you know, she's not held elected office before, so she doesn't have those votes and policy stances that, that the opponent can nitpick at and, and, and try and draw out. The Ernst campaign has tried to make uh, hay uh, about some things in Teresa Greenfield's past as a real estate business executive. I don't know that those are necessarily sticking with voters. Uh, um, I haven't gotten the impression as limited experiences we have dealing with voters in this uh, COVID uh, world and campaign, um, uh, but uh, I haven't gotten the impression that that, that um, line of attack has um, moved the needle in any great way. So so I think, uh, to your point, that uh, Teresa Greenfield has done, done a solid job. I think what will be interesting to see, and, and we won't know this until the results come in, is how successful she is at her at the grassroots level, uh, you know, getting out the vote. And I mean, this is, you're right that she has been ahead in the polling pretty consistently, but it's always been very, by very narrow margins. She has not done maybe as many in-person events as, as Joni Ernst has chosen to go the virtual uh, route, especially early in this campaign. So uh, I'll be interested to see if she's been successful enough in, in getting out across those state and and making those voter contacts and and making sure they're they're turning out their support. How is the virus affecting races? I know that your governor, Kim Reynolds, by some metrics, was among the least popular in the country, largely because of her handling of the virus. But what's your assessment of COVID-19 and election 2020? Yeah, I don't, I think that might be impacting the presidential race here in Iowa. I don't know that the Senate or the congressional races, that that's an issue that's playing with those. Other than, like I said, that when Joni Ernst made that comment about the death reporting numbers, I think that definitely did hurt her. But outside of that, I don't see that as, as an issue that's top of mind uh, to voters in those other races. Um, as I touched on earlier, I do think it's interesting more from a campaign operational standpoint and, and how the candidates have chosen to campaign in Iowa during the pandemic. Uh, Republicans have done a little bit more of the door knocking where Democrats have pulled back a little bit on that and focused on, um, you know, literature and, and calls and texts and that kind of stuff. So it'll be, that's why I say it'll be interesting to see uh, the, the turnout numbers and if Democrats are able to still maximize their people, their numbers um, in, in, during a different kind of campaign. But as far as the, you're right about Governor Reynolds and and, uh, there have been, actually there's been multiple polls that have kind of been all over on the map on her approval rating on the handling that that there was one, as you noted, that had her literally the worst in the nation. Um, But I think Iowa voters are viewing that pretty specifically through the lens of Governor Reynolds. I expect that to be more of a campaign issue in two years Uh, when we have another gubernatorial race than we do in most of these races this year. All right, let's talk about Iowa's four congressional districts, four beautifully, exquisitely drawn congressional districts, by the way, just like four quadrants of a map, no weird squiggly gerrymandered lines, three controlled by Republicans, one by a Democrat. What's the state of play there? Yeah, a little shout out there for Iowa's nonpartisan redistricting uh, format. That's how you get the, the districts like you were just describing. 
To be fair, if you have a relatively square state without one <laughs> huge city <laughs> and four districts, you know, there, there are some advantages. Yes, That's true, too. That's true, too. Um, yeah, so uh, it, it's very interesting across the board in those four congressional races this year. The first one, first, second and third districts are all close races. And then the fourth is maybe a little bit safer for Republicans. But it's interesting because that was the old Steve King seat. Um, and, and he got knocked off in the Republican primary. So now we're, it's just kind of, at the very least, it's interesting to see how a Republican other than Steve King does in that district. Uh, the Democrat is the same opponent that almost pulled off the upset of all upsets two years ago and almost beat Steve King, came within a few percentage points. Uh, J.D. Schulten, he's running again. So it'll be interesting to see how he fares against a more kind of standard, normal Republican candidate, Randy Feenstra, he's been a state lawmaker here. Um, you know, does he kind of win back some of those Republicans who had grown uh, disenfranchised with Steve King over the years? So it'll be interesting to see what that race looks like um, from that standpoint. Republicans just have such a huge voter registration in, in that advantage in that district. It's hard for Democrats to overcome. Uh, but yeah, the first and third are always com- competitive just by the voter breakdown. Um, They're very evenly split. So they're always close races. Uh, They both have Democratic incumbents who are just finishing their first terms and who are both uh, women. Uh, Abby Finkenauer over in eastern Iowa, uh, the Dubuque-Cedar Rapids area, and then Cindy Axney in central and southwest Iowa, the Des Moines Moines is in that district. Uh, So they're both finishing up their first terms. Competitive districts going to be close races. What little polling we've seen seems to suggest that they are in front in those races, uh, but we do expect them to be close. Um, and then the second district, um, also over in eastern Iowa, is is an interesting one too because it's uh, it's been represented by a Democrat for a long time, Dave Loebsack, but he's retiring, so it's an open seat race now, and it's a district that President Trump won four years ago. So, so it's a district that's shown a willingness to vote, uh, you know, either way it, it's gone for the democratic congressional candidate, but for the Republican presidential candidate. Um, so we've got two former state lawmakers uh, running in, in that one as well. Rita Hart is the Democrat and Marionette Miller Meeks, the Republican again, from what little data we have seems like another close race. Rita Hart, maybe with a slight edge, um, but, but expect that the one to be competitive as well. So, um, Three very competitive races and then a fourth one that's maybe not as competitive, but still very intriguing in its own right. So the last thing I want to talk about, and this is uh, special because Iowa is like most state governments, a trifecta, both houses of government and the governor's party are aligned. But there is a chance that Democrats could gain control of the Iowa House, not the Senate. How big a chance? What are the issues? And I want to ask you if outside fundraising groups, especially anti-gun groups are really having the same kind of effect that the NRA used to have, or maybe still does have. So what's your assessment of that? Yeah. And to, to, to answer your question, it, it very much is in play. Uh, it's a 53, 47 Republican advantage, but just two years ago, Republicans had 59 seats. So, uh, or I'm sorry, 57. So they, so they Democrats made big gains two years ago, uh, basically, what they did is swept away Republicans in the in the suburbs, especially around Des Moines, uh, flipped a lot of seats here, and and we see that's part of that national trend that we're all familiar with by this point. 
uh, the, the suburb type areas going towards the Democrats. So there's a few of those seats left that Democrats, uh, both here in Des Moines and over at Cedar Rapids in the Quad Cities, the Democrats feel like they can pick up a few more suburban seats and some some Republican retirements where they feel they have a very, very good chance of flipping a net four seats and earning the majority, which they haven't had in 10 years here in the Iowa House. And as you noted, that would be significant uh, from a policy standpoint because it would break up the Republican trifecta here in Iowa for the first time in, in four years. And, and you're absolutely right about outside groups. Newtown gun safety is has been very active here. And, and the other one um, has been Emily's List, uh, the, the women's uh, healthcare organization. Those two in particular have invested a lot of money in those state house races, supporting Democrats in those really competitive seats. Democrats feel there's about a dozen seats that they're targeting and feel they have a good enough chance to flip enough of those to get a majority. So that has been very competitive as well. Um, the issues, I think, I don't know that you can pin uh, any one issue across all of those uh, the, the smartest uh, analysis I've ever heard about statehouse level uh, politics is that it's just so local. It, it's, it's all about the candidate and Democrats feel they've done a good job of recruiting candidates in those competitive races, people who are well known and, and maybe well liked in their communities. And, and they feel uh, like they are in a very good position to um, finish what they started two years ago and, and uh, uh, flip the control of that chamber. Is every town for gun safety, is it now on an equal footing with the NRA? I, I think that's a fair question. I, I, I just know what I have seen anecdotally. Um, they are just bombing these competitive. And, and it's great for me personally. I'm in one of those swing districts here in the, in the Des Moines suburbs. I'm in one of those competitive races where Democrats are targeting a Republican incumbent. And, and the avalanche of literature from Newtown has been uh, just remarkable. Um, uh, so I, I think that's a, a, you know, it's, it's a question that probably takes a, a, a cycle or two to answer, but based on what I've seen anecdotally, uh, I think that's an absolutely fair question to wonder that we're, we're starting to see a shift in the, uh, the kind of influence that, that, that those types of groups have. Mm, that'll be an interesting, uh, meta trend to watch. Thanks so much, Aaron Murphy. You cover, as you know, you cover uh, the Des Moines. You're the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Lee Enterprise Newspapers. Thank you so much, Aaron. You bet. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. A clip from the Georgia Senate race, sorry, a Georgia Senate race has gone viral. In it, we see 33-year-old Democrat John Ossoff ripping into Republican incumbent David Perdue. Well, perhaps Senator Perdue would have been able to respond properly to the COVID-19 pandemic if you hadn't been fending off multiple federal investigations for insider trading. It's not just that you're a crook, Senator. It's that you're attacking the health of the people that you represent. Ossoff's face was turned so that the camera caught him at three-quarters profile as we also got to see him shoot daggers at the senator. Purdue, for his part, stared straight ahead, his mouth a thin line set at a latitude of precisely zero degrees. Purdue gestured with a finger, um, I'd like a second, which seemed meek, but what really lost it for him was his collar. It was a high, straight, 
starched, very white collar, possibly what they call an Eton collar, stiff and tight. It gave him perhaps a clerical look, but mostly it locked his neck and head into an uncomfortably fixed position, as if put against a wall and made to pose for a mugshot. Now, that clip did go viral, which really doesn't matter much to the actual outcome of any individual Senate race. A few thousand people on the internet who aren't Georgia voters and who don't know the issues may have been impressed by this charismatic boy dressing down his uncomfortable elder. By the way, in that clip and in others I play, see if you hear what I hear. A little bit of the Obama, if not exact tone, but cadence out of Ossoff. Can you look down the camera and tell the people of this state why you voted four times to allow insurance companies to deny us health coverage? Why, Senator? So what I did was, I went in search of the entire debate to see who really did better overall. Bad news. The entire debate seems not to exist. I mean, it happened and you can get clips of it. And I saw eight minute chunks here and 10 minute chunks there on YouTube. But C-SPAN pulled down the debate because of copyright issues. WTOP of Savannah, which sponsored debate, hasn't posted it in full. I think that's not good for democracy. This was, however, the second debate, and I watched the first one. The first one was horrible. It was a Zoom affair with all the glitches and technical interruptions, also temperamental interruptions. So, Senator Perdue, do you uh, still support abolishing the Department him. of I Education? Didn't, I didn't mention his name, Donna. I'm sorry. Do you still support just, abolishing the Department of Education? Donna, Will you answer I did, the question? Right. It's a simple Mr. question. Mr. Perdue, go ahead. Senator Perdue, go ahead. I'm done. All righty. So no answer. All right. Then we're going to move on. And move on they did. Donna heard reference there. The moderator would occasionally say 10 seconds, but she'd also literally hold up a sign that had the word 10 seconds on it, like the viral clip of the energetic first grade teacher who used a shush stick. Ossoff asked Purdue many times, four or five, if he really wanted to abolish the Department of Education. Purdue's answers were, um, I don't think it's his turn to speak, and why won't you answer if you take corporate funds? Ossoff doesn't, or says he doesn't, by the way. Most of the time was spent on Ossoff hitting Purdue on Purdue's general downplaying of the virus, which is, I think, a fair attack. He did downplay the virus. Also, Purdue did vote four times against ending the Affordable Care Act. That is true. That is indisputable. And then Ossoff also complained about all the dirty politicking going on. Purdue had a rebuttal for each of these points. That rebuttal and a large percentage of the overall words he spoke was one phrase. His radical socialist agenda. Your radical socialist agenda. How radical your socialist agenda really is. He wants this to be a socialist state. He is radical and he is trying to hide this radical socialist agenda. He'll say anything to hide his radical socialist agenda. All of those references, by the way, from the first 17 minutes of the debate, there were more. I spared you. Ossoff did not spare Purdue. This is so beneath the office of a U.S. senator. You've continued to demean yourself throughout this campaign with your conduct. First, you were lengthening my nose in attack ads to remind everybody that I'm Jewish. Then when that didn't work, you started calling me some kind of Islamic terrorist. Now, at first I wondered, I heard this charge. Well, maybe this is one of those ads that was, you know, a Pinocchio riff. You see this in political commercials. John Ossoff lied about his summer home in Tybee Island. And he lied about accepting money from unscrupulous phrenologists. What else is John Nokio lying about? 
By the way, let me, I was thinking about Pinocchio. What if you had the Pinocchio affliction, right? Every time you lied, the nose would grow, but without the nose. Forget the nose part of it. Just the slide whistle. That would still be almost as bad. Every time you lie, and you'd have to have ways to cover up, to, you know, just factor this into your life, knowing that you're going to lie. No, no, honey, that's not lipstick. I guess my shirt just came back from the cleaner with cranberry sauce on the collar. But anyway, spinning wheel, got to go around. Or, or I'd never type such a thing. Someone must have hacked my password. But the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 240 points today in heavy trading. It would be exhausting. And what about every time if you said something vaguely unexpected, there was a huge record scratch? Here's my question. Knowing that, would you lean into it and try to say exciting things because you know you'd have this sound effect backing you up? Or would it torture you and you'd get very risk averse and you wouldn't want to say anything? Like you meet a friend at a party and you're loath to even mention this. Oh, what's up? What's up with you? Well, um, I decided to go back to school and you wait and you listen. Okay, no record scratch. You get a little more confident. And um, I guess I'm gonna take some marketing classes. <laughs> ah! Anyway, back to the nose. John Ossoff's nose. Yeah, no Pinocchio ad. It was just a computer-enhanced nose. In an ad featuring Ossoff, who's Jewish, and Chuck Schumer, who happens to be Lutheran. No, I'm being told also a Jew. And the charge of the ad was, Democrats are trying to buy Georgia. Purdue explained that the ad had been taken down and that the alteration had been an outside vendor's error. We paid for the darkened rings under the eyes package. They gave us the full Shlomo Alechem. But these are, these are nasty issues, small issues, nasty issues. But no, no huge shakes, really. I can understand being offended. It's not right to take out an anti-Semitic ad. But the, the big thing is Purdue really had no answer to it. And then on the bigger issues... Issues that Georgians care about, life and death and the ACA and COVID, Purdue had no real answers. And then when asked to articulate a justification for his own campaign, you know, beyond we're not the radical socialists, I saw in the first debate Purdue with no answers. I read about what he said in the second debate and watched, you know, the clips of it I could. He seemed to have no answers. It seems that David Purdue is running on nothing other than I'm not this three-word phrase he says John Ossoff is. He is a stiff, somewhat nasty, talking point beholden, Trump-affiliated piece of political food stuff. And that's what's weird. That's what's weird about the state. You heard me talking about this on Monday. But Georgia is very much approaching purple. And usually you get a range of characters looking to an appeal to an electorate. You'd have the partisans who back you already. But you also have a lot of centrist voters out there who can be persuaded if you have a purple state. So often a politician in a purple state will at least try to seem moderate or centrist. But it seems that Purdue isn't making any attempt to persuade anyone who isn't already on the Trump-Purdue side. And the same thing's going on in the other Senate race with with Leffler and Collins. Okay, there's a different dynamic there. They got to go after each other. But it is quite odd. This is not purple state politics. Take Pennsylvania, classic purple state. You have a fairly moderate senator there, Pat Toomey. Before him, you had a quite moderate Republican turned actual moderate Democrat, Arlen Specter. Look at Iowa, which we talked about before. It's a state that gives us Joni Ernst, who isn't some radical Republican. And and Chuck Grassley, and Tom Harkin, you know, 
old cranky guys, but guys who could work with the other side of the aisle. Take Florida. Marco Rubio can appeal to moderates in Florida. So can their Senator Rick Scott. Former Republican Governor Charlie Crist is now Democratic Congressman. Charlie Crist. It doesn't always hold true, but Georgia is an odd state where the electorate seems to be moderating at the same time that the most prominent politicians running for office or running the state are going further and further to the right. This could be a blip, could correct itself, or the correction could come from the voters. Ossoff leads by a point or two in the latest polls. 538 says Purdue is still the favorite, and there is very much a possibility that this doesn't get decided on Tuesday, but there's a runoff. Either way, I know Georgia, I know the voters are wise, and I am certain they will make sure that the best man wins. (laughs) Margaret Kelly produces The Gist. She allowed her pet iguana to just ride around in circles on the phonograph. What could go wrong? (laughs) Daniel Schrader is interested in your moderate socialist agenda. Even your radical communist conversation starters. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is trying to decide what kind of collar will serve her best if she is excoriated for improprieties in her next debate. She's got it down to Peter Pan or scalloped. The gist. This is beneath you. In the campaign ad, you have used a computer program to add payas to my head. You've outfitted me in a prayer shawl and a yarmulke. You've photoshopped a fiddle in my hand and placed this picture of me on a roof. You situate on this roof Bernie Sanders, Rahm Emanuel, the late Yitzhak Rabin and Rabbi Shmuley Botek. That is it. I hereby rescind my invitation to Shavuot. Good day, sir. Umpru depru duperu, and thanks for listening.